Well, I trust that uh, you're enjoying celebrating our Lord's uh, resurrection today. Who here doesn't want to be happy? If I were to ask that, if I were to ask you if you wanted to be happy, I would think that everybody in here would answer that with a resounding yes, right? Yes, definitely. Whether you are or not, I believe you'd want to be happy, and not just once in a while, but always, right? Completely. Every day. Every moment. And the thing is that that's not always the case. That's, uh, it's too bad it's not the case, but uh, it, it is. But if I ask the question, would you like to be full of joy eternally? What would you answer to that? And then how about, don't you want the fullest joy possible? Don't you want that? I mean, that's really what we really want. We're, we're always struggling for something else that satisfies us. Have you ever noticed that? Even as Christians, when we have Christ, we still know there's something else. Now, we know what the answer is, hopefully. We've got to be reminded. But C.S. Lewis said this, and I think in these words it uh, really uh, rings true. He said this, If I find myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And then he goes on to say, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse the longing for satisfaction. Did you catch that? Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy. They don't but only to arouse that longing for satisfaction. Remember that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? I know the answer. <laughs> I know why he's not. But you know what? That, that thought that we just got from C.S. Lewis helps me to understand the longings that I have in my human heart. And that you have in your human heart. There's always something that you're longing for just a little bit more. And so, that helps me understand. Like, when we first fall in love or fell in love, you know, it's not that same kind of feeling. Hopefully it gets better as if people are married. But Or, how about when you travel? You go to some place and it's just the greatest place in the world and you'd love to be there more. I, I can think of the beach. Uh, but you can't be there forever, you know. And, and if you were, you'd get tired of it. and be uh, all sorts of hurricanes come your way or something. And then you can also think of education. You can't get the, the best of education. And you really want that. You want the best job that you can possibly get with the most money. And nobody's usually really satisfied with that. But we think of this and we know even if we had the best job and the money that we needed to have and all those things and had a happy family, we still would have a longing because God arouses the longing for satisfaction. And we have that and we grasp for that continually, but yet there is a completion to it. And that's what we are after. Wouldn't you want your joy to last forever? Do you have joy today, right now, as, as we celebrate our Lord's resurrection? Amen. 
You do, don't you? Right? I heard you singing. Jesus never condemned the quest for happiness. Now that sounds kind of opposite of what Christianity is. Because we always talk about, you know, we're not going to get our happiest right here. We have a a better life that's coming. But He encouraged uh, happiness. And what does this all that we talk about here, about this happiness and full of joy, what does it have to do with Resurrection Day? Well, actually, it has everything to do with the Resurrection Day. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, it says in 28, You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, that's going to be out of a text that we're going to deal with today. We see that the Bible, right there, just in that verse alone, I could point out many more, but in that verse alone, we see that the Bible does have concern for our happiness. Why does God give us this drive to constantly want to be happy, fulfilled, joyful? Well, we are to have it now. We are to be joyful always. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. There we go. In the glorious presence of God, because that is where we know we get it. But in His kingdom, when we be with Him and we see Him as He is, and we will be able to see Him as He is because then we have been transferred into a new body, then we'll have our fullest joy. We are to have it now, but there is a perfect fullness of joy that we want. We're striving for and we look to that. This is where the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes in. This is where it's at. It's the most significant, the most crowning event in all of history. You know that? There is nothing like the resurrection. And that's why I can say today, as we celebrate this, is the greatest celebration that we can have here on this earth. So if you're not rejoicing in this, in this day and what we're doing, uh, your focus is wrong. Because this is it. Jesus Christ, and uh, there's nothing like it. It's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without a resurrection, there is no use to be here. We're wasting our time. We're lying. And there is no truth in what we say. Why bother? Eat, drink, and be merry, right? And then die. Boy, that would be not much hope, would it? Because you'd still have that longing, but it would never be satisfied. And He has it for our satisfaction. We have the guarantee of heaven. Isn't that incredible? We know that. A lot of people guarantee things and it doesn't always come true. But this guarantee is absolute. You can bank on it 100%. I can know this for sure more than um, when I go out there and try to start my car. By the way, it doesn't always do that. (laughs) But I can pretty well, you know, figure that I'm going to go out there and it's going to start, right? Well, resurrection is absolutely 100%. Our inheritance is coming in the living Savior. We have an inheritance, and it's the inheritance of Jesus Christ. We get what He gets. Unbelievable. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the provision that guarantees for us that we not be risen to everlasting judgment. 
Because everybody who lives will be resurrected, will have different bodies than they do now. They'll be fitted for the place that they go to. And if you have eternal life, your body will be fitted for glory in the great kingdom. Is that a good thought? I can't think of anything better, huh? The resurrection of Jesus Christ where He arose bodily from death and the grave is a pledge. It's a promise. We have all the proofs of it. I'm not going to go into the proofs this year, which I've done several times down through the years. But we can know that we have an eternal bliss and joy that is awaiting us in the meantime, that should charge us up to have joy now because, you know, it should be multiplied even when we get together like this because we know the Lord is in our presence individually. We're two or three or we're a whole group to get together. And they praise God. It's just kind of magnified on a particular day like today, isn't it? When we get together together and shout the praises of our great King. And so we will be serving and worshiping and be completely satisfied every moment for the rest of eternity, which is eternity. You will never be dissatisfied, not one little bit of uh, dejection. It will be at its max constantly. I can't imagine that. Today, right now, we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate it every day in our lives, don't we? There aren't too many days that you go by that you don't think about the, you know, what Christ did. And every Sunday that we meet, that is celebrating the resurrection. That's why the church met on the first day of the week after Jesus had arisen. Later on, the church met on the first day of the week. Celebrate that. And now once a year we do that as we have our energies focused upon the direction of this resurrection. So it's very special. What a day. Some people consider the 4th of July important and, and Labor Day and Memorial Day. I like those days. You get off from work and just enjoy and meet with family, friends, uh, eat good food and you know whatever. It's just a great time. It's a great time of joy. Christmas is a great time. You celebrate His birth. Fantastic. Resurrection uh, completes it all. Though. This, is, this is what it's about. That's what it's about. Okay. Um, Our text today is in Acts 2, starting at verse 24. I like verse 23. Acts 2, 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was planned for the foundation of the ages. This was already planned. But it's the responsibility of men. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. It had to be. This had to be done. But it's still held responsible to the people who did it. I did that. I crucified Him. I put Him on the cross. He died for my sin. Yes, human hands actually put Him there on the cross. The Romans did it. The Jews did it. But each one of us did it too. Here we go. Verse 24. After... That, he says, whom God raised up. Do you think Peter ever forgot about this? I bet it was on his mind for the rest of his life almost constantly. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he quotes out of Psalms. For David says concerning him, 
I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Wow. What a sermon Peter preached. That's just a little bit of it. This was the first sermon in the church. And he quotes out of the Psalms, quotes from other places. He's already done that in his text and now he brings up the resurrection. You can't have a gospel without the resurrection. He lived, died, buried, rose again the third day. The gospel is about the resurrection of Christ and Him dying for our sins. But we don't leave Him on the cross, do we? So by using this passage of Acts 2, we see that there is joy. What's your joy? There's joy in the fact that we can trust the Word of God. Do you rejoice in the fact that you can say, hey, I know everything in here is right. It's true. There is no lie here. God has given us His Word and He'll never go back on it. Do you take joy in that? Because if we didn't, if we could say, well, you know, some of it's error. Some of it's just not true. The Bible, you know, people say that. There are people in the church who say that. If that be the fact, then how do we even know He rose from the dead? Well, there are proofs and there are even secular accounts, but the best account is found in our Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, other places. We can trust it. And that's what Peter did. Uh, he trusted his word. Now, Jesus had already given the word about this, that he was going to rise the third day. Uh, Peter didn't get it. And none of the other apostles did either. And we would not have either. But there was a prophecy that was fulfilled. Peter picks up on it. It shows how valid it is. When we look at the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter 1, you have Jesus resurrected. He was around for 40 days. Then he ascended. There were 10 other days. That led to Pentecost. Pente means 5 or 50. After 50 days of the resurrection, after the resurrection, that was during the Passover time, there was always 50 days. They would always have the next feast, which was Pentecost. And that's whenever uh, the Holy Spirit 
is put into these people, these believers, and they spread the gospel out. Peter preached that message. When Jesus was here for those 40 days as the risen Lord, can you imagine, after traveling with Him for three and a half years, seeing all the things that He did, He did the miracle of miracles. He rose from the dead. And you had your doubts about that. I mean, how does anybody believe that? I mean, you've never seen anything like that before. This is totally different. So you're walking around with Him. You're talking with Him. And you say, I know He was dead. He was in the tomb. He was there for three days. He actually died. And there He is with you. Would that be something? Verse 3 of Acts 1, to whom He also presented... Oh, verse 2. Until the day in which He was taken up, after He through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs. And there were 500 witnesses. The apostles saw Him continually. People saw Him. He only appeared to whoever He wanted to. Being seen by them during 40 days. It wasn't that it was like a a thing where he rose and then he would kind of appear real quick, boom, he was gone. Or hung around for a couple of days. He hung around for five weeks. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Speaking about the kingdom of God. I'm all ears. Can you, if you're around, I mean, you don't care about work. You don't care about sleep. You don't care about the ball game that's going to happen Sunday. <laughs> All you want to do is hang around. I don't care about fishing. I want to hear what he has to say. Would you be that way? You knew he came back from the dead. You wouldn't want to do anything else, would you? Man, this had to be something else. And that's what's going on. Peter uh, is checking this out. Now, he ascends to heaven. It's at the right hand of the Father. Now you've got ten days before the Holy Spirit's going to come. They don't know when He's going to come, but they're waiting. And they all get together, 120, and they're in the upper room. And they're remembering that He came back to life. Can you imagine going through the Torah? They didn't have a printed page like we do. They got the scrolls. They're, they're taking out the scrolls. They're getting, they got it from the tabernacle over on the temple, I mean. And they're spreading these things out. And... and they're checking that out. Look, 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 look here. And Peter glances upon the book of Psalms. And he finds this section about the resurrection. He says, that's it. That was telling about Jesus as the Messiah who is going to be resurrected. He never forgot that. They examined all the passages in the Old Testament. Did you know the Old Testament is full of Christ's suffering? You know, Isaiah 53, it's incredible. And the resurrection is found in Isaiah 53 also. About the Messiah. These things that the prophets had foretold had been fulfilled. And we're not talking about being fulfilled and hearing about it like we have 2,000 years later. They saw it fulfilled right before their eyes. It happened in their time. Now, we wait for the return of Christ. What would happen if you literally saw the return of Christ and I mean, he, you meet Him in the air? <laughs> I mean, somebody's going to be... There's going to be some alive that, that that's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about that. Uh, meeting Him in the air. Getting resurrected bodies. They won't even die in the sense, but they'll pass to a, a new life. 
a new body. Wow. Um, I mean, you just you just wouldn't forget that, would you? What a staggering thought. So they had to be amazed knowing that this was in their time. This is it, guys. This was what was foretold. We saw Him and we experienced Him. And that's why Psalm 16 made a huge impact on Peter. And it would have every one of you. When you find a passage that you see that you hadn't seen before and all of a sudden it comes to life and it speaks to you and all of a sudden it's clear as a bell. Don't you delight in that? Do you take joy in the fact that, hey, this was filled. This was done. I see what that means now. David made a prophecy. So when you read Psalm 16, when you first read it and you realize that this was written during the time of King David, 1,000 years before it happened. This was pre-written history. Have you ever heard of that? It's history, but it was written beforehand. That will come true. David didn't know Christ in the, in the sense that he didn't walk around with Him. But he did know Him. And we know Him too because of the Word of God. David knew about this Messiah. Resurrection, Old Testament saints knew about it. It was in the book of Job. It was in the Psalms, as, as in this text and other places. It would probably have been a little bit uh, more on the shady side to them then compared to what we have now because we were on the back side of it and we have more Scripture and we see the details of what happened, but they, they believed in that. And Peter, uh, I mean, David here gives some details on, on the resurrection. And Peter discovers this brings it to, to light to his listeners here. And these people are brought to conviction and repentance. This is the first message from the, the church in Acts chapter 2. First message is given. Peter preaches the Gospel. He says he starts quoting Scripture. Quotes a lot of Scripture. Talks about this is, this is the time. And then he gets into the resurrection. And this proves. The resurrection proves things. You know, we've always done where we've done, here's the proof of the resurrection. And you go through all those different things why we, we know that it's, uh, it's true and here are the proofs. This time we have the resurrection proves the trustworthiness of the Word. What, what was David thinking when he wrote this? What was he thinking? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, Isaiah 9, 6-7. I'm just going to read Isaiah because it's the quickest. Um, in Isaiah 9, you usually hear this at uh, Christmas time. But David was given a promise in 2 Samuel about there being one that would continue on the kingship. Uh, he would be the ultimate king. And in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. David knew about this. From the loins of David would come a king, the Messiah, the anointed one, and he would be the ultimate king. David knew this. David believed it. David even wrote it. David wrote it down here in Psalm 16. 
David is writing, but the Messiah is speaking through him, even though it's David for a little bit in here, but it's really ultimately the Messiah. David is expressing his hope in God. Look at our verse 25. For David says concerning him. Now, in your versions, you'll have the word him capitalized because it's really him. It's about the Messiah. But at first you think, well, this is about David. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Can that happen to David? Do you remember all the turmoil that he had in his uh, life before he came king? How about after he came king? But whenever they were chasing him down and such, and he's hiding out in the caves, he knew that God would take care of him. He's saying things that go above his experience, but he said he would not be shaken. How would David not be shaken? Well, look at verse 26. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Now, could that be David? I think in, in, to an extent it is. Because that's us. We hope in our great God. We rejoice. Our tongue is glad, right? We rejoice in that. He was secure in God. David knew he was secure. He knew he was going to be protected. But ultimately, the Messiah is saying this because he's confident about the future. He knows that that God, the triune God, has determined all these steps and he knows what's going to happen. Was David rejoiced in this and glad? Yes, he was. David could rejoice because of the confidence and the hope that he has in his great God. He could rest in that, couldn't he? Do you rest in that great hope? When your life is in turmoil and you're in the middle of this storm... You know what it says in the middle of the storm, in the eye of the storm? It's where it's peaceful. It can be in the middle of that, and that's where we're at, even though all around us things are just disturbing, going crazy, and at the same time you have a peace. Isn't that great? Boy, we need this news, don't we? Don't we need to be reminded of this? Not left in Hades. Verse 27, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Hmm. How would David be protected? Wait a minute. David eventually died. Oh. And he makes this statement. Leave my soul in Hades and uh, corruption. It won't have me corrupt. My body. Peter had to ask this. Yes, but didn't he die? Didn't his body go through decay? Yeah, he did. Did David expect that he would never die? No. He would die like other people. Did he think that his body would not be under corruption? I think as he's talking here, as we see in verse 27, there's a holy one. There's a Messiah. David is looking forward. He doesn't know when it's going to be. And it was a thousand years later, but coming out of his line, the line of David, and you'll find that in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, where you see the line of the royal king, and there is Jesus. How does this apply to David? David did die. There was corruption of the body. There's been no resurrection of David when this was written. 
There's been no resurrection of David yet. He awaits resurrection like we await resurrection. Peter gets it. Now this is Peter. Did, did you understand that? Before, he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Matter of fact, he even corrected Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to have to go there and uh, I'm going to die. Peter said, oh no, Lord, not you. Not You, you don't have to die. Positive thinking, right? Uh, he wasn't tied in with the Word of God. Yes, he does have to die. He was thinking the best, Peter was. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That doesn't come from my truth. He was corrected. Jesus also told him that you're going to go through some uh, temptation and you're going to fail. But I'm going to bring you back out. He denied him. Jesus told him that. And it did happen. Oh, no, Lord, I'd never deny you. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he preaches a tremendous sermon that's recorded for us to read 2,000 years later, word for word. Peter got it. And he saw that this went far beyond David. He knew David died. He knew David was buried. He knew that he was still there, as far as the tomb was there. This goes to the second David. Peter makes the connection. Look in verse 31 just to make it for sure proven. We'll read that. He foreseeing this. He foreseeing that David foresaw this. This is a prophecy. What he wrote, he foresaw, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. Ooh, he hits him right in the gut. This was him. The ones you put on the cross, the ones you killed, he resurrected that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Who is David writing about? The Messiah. The Messiah. Peter has an argument that is so clear. It's the one who comes from David's loins. Verse 32, we get a great summary. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Peter was a witness. James and John. Matthew, right? You just go right on through them, and then all the other people that were around there that saw him dying, and then they saw him being uh, walking around on the land. This is so vital to proclaim in the gospel or the good news. This is what we tell people. It's locked tight. We have the truth. This is the sermon of the church, the first church. And here it is today. The church still has that. That's part of the Gospel. We are to proclaim that. He came right out of the Old Testament showing the joy of David and his faithfulness. I mean, his trusting in the faithfulness of the Word of God. But look at Peter. He has great joy as he preaches this knowing the faithfulness of God's Word. Did you know the resurrection proves the truthfulness of God's prophecies? It's a fact. Historically, it happened. Number two, joy is God's goal. Joy is God's goal for His Son. We'll start there. That's where we go back to that happiness thing we were talking about. God's goal for Jesus beyond the grave was found right in Psalm 16. 
the one that Peter quotes here from 25 through 28. He would have gladness. He didn't abandon his soul to Hades or allow him to decay. He raised his son up from the dead so that he would have fullness of happiness forever. For we look at that. Verse 26, Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Drop down to verse 28. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. You have made known to me the ways of life as He was in His humanness. You will make me full of joy in Your presence. This is the goal of it all. Not just to die for us so the sin will be taken away. We humans like to stop with it there because it means something for us and fantastic, awesome, that's the way it should be, but let's take it up one step higher. It's for the glory of God. Even much better than even we will be raised is the fact that this brings glory to Him. He will be full of joy in the Father's presence. Did you know that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit delight in each other's presence? They take tremendous joy as they are in perfect union and communion. Joy in His presence. Psalm 16, verse 11. David didn't quote this verse and there was a reason because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire him to write this or to say this next verse, but he did David. And I want you to look at it in Psalm 16, right at the end of it. He'd already quoted like a verse 8 through 10, and he kind of stopped there, or, or, or verse 11. You will show me the path of life and your presence, fullness of joy. But look at the next sentence. At your right hand. Have you ever heard of this one? At his his right hand, what are there? Pleasures forevermore. Did you get that? Did you know we have a hedonistic gospel? You know what hedonism is? Hedonism is just looking for all the things that can make you happy all the time. You know, the, the things of the earth. But John Piper took that a step higher and wrote a book about it. Got in trouble by a lot of people, but uh, I'm afraid they didn't understand what he's talking about. He's talking about we are to have joy. What is the chief in a man to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. That is also part of God's plan. We are to have pleasures in Him forevermore. That's good news, isn't it? You are promised this. Promised forever. Peter didn't quote it, but he has already emphasized the joy. What are the pleasures forevermore? What is the essence of joy? First of all, glory for the Son. Look in John 17, verse 5. We're nearing the end of this here. Short message today. At least I thought it was going to be. For me, 45 minutes could be the shortest I've done. Okay, 17.5. And now, O Father, this is His prayer before He died for the disciples, for us. And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before I had to come down here on earth and suffer through all this, restore me back to that joy I once was. You know, and he's saying a perfect prayer because he knows it's what's going to happen. He's saying a prayer that lines up with God's truth. That's the way our prayer should be. Something that lines up with His truth. And then if we know it's something that God would take pleasure in that we ask, we may not ask it in the right way, or it may not be exactly the same way, but we're seeking that out because we think it to be true. We want it to be true, but Lord, then we always say this, Lord, let it be Your will. Right? Because we want all of our prayers to be His will. Well, He knew this, was, this and He knew what was going to happen. Glorify Me together with Yourself, which the glory I had before. That is the essence of joy. The supreme goal is that the Son would be glorified. That's the supreme joy. That is the supreme happiness, folks. That Christ would be glorified. Why are we here today? That Christ be glorified. Pursuing happiness is a godly thing. Look in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, there's a word, that was set before Him, He knew the cross was coming, endured the cross, despising the shame, and look, he looks past the cross into the throne room of heaven and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, when you're going through the trials and tribulations, you know what it says in verse 1? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Lay aside. And what do you do? You run with endurance the race that is set before us. God has the race already planned out for you in your life. You just keep on running down the track. Keep on going the way that He set forth. And what do we do? As you are running that race, what do you look for? You look to the end of the race. You look for the winner's trophy. You look for the line that says, finish. You're looking for the finish line. You look to that. What do you do? Do you look down at your feet as you're running? The moment you do that, you've just lost the race because you'll be tumbling all over the track. And everybody else is going to be sailing right past you. Just keep on looking. What? Unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, even that terrible cross, but ultimately He saw, He didn't stumble over that, what He's going to have to go through, the suffering. He saw what was at the end. And He knew that. And He knew He was going to get there. Is that joy? That was the joy that was set before Him. That's the goal. Jesus pursued this happiness. It was the ultimate. So we too need to have our eyes set on Him. Did you know that glorious triumph awaits? Jesus could endure because He knew the Father's presence was awaiting Him at the end. The pleasures were going to be forevermore. He saw the triumph. He knew that He would resurrect. The fullness of joy is there. The resurrection is what made it possible to get back to the presence of the Father. That is why your resurrection that you so celebrate today is important to us. 
It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus came to save what? Sinners. Every one of us. Sinners. He came to earth to be a ransom for the many, the elect. He wanted to share in Him the presence of God. Jesus longed for His glory. But you know what? It was also going to be for the ones who the Father gave Him to be in the presence so that they would experience the joy of Christ and His glory. What a joy this is! This is the kind of happiness that we were talking about when we opened up today. Jesus wanted to show His glory to them. Look in John 17.24. This is what He wanted to do. It pointed to all of this. Had to go through the resurrection. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom You gave Me may be with Me where I am that they may behold My glory which You have given Me. For You love Me for the foundation of the world. Wow. That is what it's about. Where do I get my gladness? I get it in His glory. He wanted others to share in His glory. Do you know how precious you are to God? You are the apple of His eye. He wants you to get in on this gladness. He wants it to to overflow like a mountain spring and to become the gladness of all His people. I want Your joy, Lord, to be in Me, Your glory, so that they can experience this and they can be full of joy forever and ever. Amen. And we don't have time, but you can find the bliss of heaven found in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more sin. You'll never be tempted ever again. Everything will be bliss from one moment to the next. 1 Corinthians 15, 53-57, dealing with the resurrection. The joy out of that and what becomes out of that. Here's what John Piper says about this in his close of his message that he gave on this thought. On Resurrection Sunday morning, Jesus blew the lock off the prison of death and gloom and returned to the gladness of God. With that, He put His sanction on the pursuit of happiness. And He opened the way for sinners to find a never-ending satisfaction at the fountain of the glory of His grace. Have you found that? From the right hand of God, He speaks to every one of us today and He invites us to the unending banquet. I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall not hunger and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in Me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you guys believe this? Amen? Amen. 
This is where we find happiness. This is where we find our fullness of joy. And if you don't seek that out in that way and seeking Him and His glory, then your happiness will always come to an end. It will never be satisfying. Our pleasures are found in Him because He rose from the dead. We have assurance of those precious promises that He gave. They're all true. We get into this kingdom because we will have resurrection bodies. These bodies cannot allow us to see Him. And we will see the living One, the living risen One, And that's the ultimate happiness and the fullness of joy. Let's pray.